Amen. Good morning, everybody. I don't know about you, but yeah, I'm a horrible singer. I mean, from sitting up here, you can hear everybody projecting, and it's just like, what a choir you are. Like, really amazing singers, and you could really feel um, the effort from some of you. Um, So that's great. Um, But I'm a horrible singer, but when you're in a time like that, and there's a team that's leading you in worship, and you're sitting there, and you they stop and you're just like, I want to keep singing. Like as a horrible singer, that's something, right? You're just like, you just sense the presence of God and the goodness of God. And as a a horrible singer and you just want to keep singing, that's significant. Like that means something. It means that that God is doing something really awesome. And thank you to the team for leading us um, in worship this morning. And isn't it awesome to have Pastor Raja back? Give him a warm welcome back to the church. Isn't it awesome? Uh, we missed you, Raj, and they've been having to deal with me for the last couple of weeks. And so um, the good news is next week Raj is back and he's starting a new series. He gave me a teaser of the series that he's going to be starting um, next week. And I, as soon as I heard it, I was like, I need that. I have to have that. It's like that food that you have to consume. It was just like, I got to be here for that. So here, if you can do this when you go home from this place... Um, go to your, immediately to your calendar, no matter where it is, and if there is something on Sunday morning, I want you to cross it out, I want you to delete that, I want you to reschedule it, whatever it takes, and be here next week for that, it's going to be an awesome series, and if you absolutely cannot um, be there for that, then you want to make sure to check online when the sermon is uploaded, um, and be listening to that, and keep up with it, I think you're not going to want to miss that series, and so, um, just to an awesome plug about that. It's going to be great. But today, in the meantime, you're going to be, um, uh, we're going to be finally finishing the Micah series that I started a couple weeks ago. It's been a joy for me to, to be walking with you in this series. And so today we're going to actually be diving into Micah 6.8. It's called Micah 6.8, but we haven't actually really even started to look at Micah 6.8 yet, which is kind of crazy. So we've, this is part three, and we're now already going to uh, start to settle in. And the reason why we haven't quite got to it yet is I really felt that it was important to, as I said at the beginning, to look at the substance behind Micah 6.8 before we actually get into it. Because we're very accustomed to, as North Americans, of gravitating to specific bullet points, pulling them out, and then hanging on those specific things without looking at the context behind that or the substance behind the verse that we absolutely love and enjoy. And Micah 6.8 is one of those examples. And so we talked about the theme of doom and hope. And I'll just give you a little bit of a a note here of the review that we had. And if you have missed the previous two, you want to go back and check them out too because there's some things this morning that I'm going to quickly um, walk through that you'll get the substance and the content in the first two weeks. And so I want to encourage you to go back and listen to them. But we talked about the themes of doom and hope in Micah. That God had looked at the people of Israel and the people of Judah, and he was their judge and the witness in their case. They were guilty in in, in all that. I mean, it was a, there was no chance that the case against Israel and Judah could have been in their favor. They were guilty for the sin that they did. And last week, we looked at the four sins, this areas of corruption that the people of Israel and Judah were guilty of. We talked about worship and the corruption of worship, the fact that they were worshiping the works of their own hands rather than worshiping um, the creator of all things. They had abandoned his, his will. They had abandoned his glory and they had created new idols from themselves. And then they were fighting amongst each other 
against one another, destroying the fabric of community all because of their worship was not focused and directed in the right place, which was God, their creator. There was a corruption of justice. We talked a little bit about the fact that the myth that affluence equals justice, that the rich, the wealthy, were using their wealth and their affluence to ensure their spirituality or the closeness to God. And that leaders of the time were, were basically taking bribes in order to say what the people wanted to hear. You know, they were paying the, the spiritual leader, okay, help me feel better about myself. And that's where charity also comes in. The corruption of charity is this form of affluence management that the only reason that they were giving um, was out of personal greed, not actually out of this desire to, to see grace grow and be expanded in this the submission to God and his wonderful love. They had misused, misused that and they were using charity as this way of appeasing their affluence. They weren't willing to give everything up for God. They just wanted to make sure that they felt good at the end of the day. And then the fourth thing too is this corruption of righteousness that they had replaced righteousness with self-righteousness. As you know, God gives us righteousness. He, he, he provides that for us. We cannot do that within ourselves. And so here we have the Israelites and the people of Judah believing quite clearly that the, the righteousness was done through themselves and that they could say and act any way that they wanted to and then justify that. But we know that that is not the case. And so then at the end of that, we talked about repentance. And, the, and we had shared communion with you, one another last week and talking about the righteousness that comes through God, the grace and the forgiveness, the mercy that comes through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and the beauty of that. And um, really what we're going to do today is, as I said, focus in on Micah 6.8. And what that looks like. Where do we go from here now that we've laid this groundwork and this substance? And as I said, the themes of Mike are doom and hope. So what is the, that component of hope of where we're going? Because as you know, as travelers, I don't know how many of you are travelers, but whenever you're going overseas, I've had the, the privilege of being able to go overseas several times and to be in Asia and Africa. And I don't know about you, but I don't like flying. Um, I white-knuckle the flights. How many other people are like that? You approach, there's one thing, a few, there's a few. There's a pilot back there with his hand up. There's, there's like, there's so many people um, who look at a flight and are petrified and terrified. There's a phobia of flying, of course, you've heard of that before. People who are unwilling to get on an airplane and go somewhere because of this absolute consuming fear they can't get on. And then there are people, the crazy ones, that absolutely love flying and they get this sense of freedom and this exhilarating feeling from being in an airplane. It's just beautiful to stare at the window. I don't like the window seat on an airplane. Um, we had a flight to Addis Ababa and uh, Eli was, I mean, all he wanted to do was walk around the airplane, like the entire flight. And that was like a 13, 14 hour flight. And um, he was a three, you know, he's three years old and trying to keep him occupied. That's really the only thing that you could do is just keep walking around and around and around and around. And after a while, it was just like, I can't take this anymore. Because he would go up to the, near, near the back where the emergency exit was, and he would go right up, and there's this little window there, and he would go right up into this window and be 
staring out. And I don't know if you've been in that position before, but as somebody who doesn't like flying, the only thing I could picture was that door popping open. I know it's impossible to, like, I mean, it would take this, I mean, it would just be, it's an impossibility for that door just to fly open. Um, but it was just like, I'm like looking at this and, and I'm petrified, scared of, of what could potentially happen. So when I'm in an airplane, like every little sound frightens me and scares me. But I'm willing to go on an airplane because I know that the destination is worth it. I love it when I actually get there, when I actually arrive, when I'm actually at that destination. And I can get off that plane. There's just this exhilarating feeling that comes over you that you just feel like, ah, now I know why I endured that to get to this. And Micah 6.8 is kind of like this hopeful destination that we know is coming that we know that God is going to bring about good things in this world. I talked about it a few sermons ago, that God does great things. He does amazing things, and he did them through the Old Testament. He does them in the New Testament. You see them described. You see them in our lives through our testimonies. But sometimes there's those things that we have to endure, that we have to get on the plane to face our fears, to face our irrational thoughts. we got to face those things that hold us back and paralyze us, to get to the spot where we, we all of a sudden get to that landing point and we're just like, this is awesome. And I don't know why I felt that way before. I don't know why I had all those feelings. Because getting there, it's like this door opens up and this new freedom of like, man, I'm so glad that we came to this place and this spot. And so I'm hopeful today that in this pers- with this perspective of hope that we would kind of try to abandon this, the paralysis of Micah 6.8. Of the fact that there's no way, the fear of there's no way that we can be attained and, and be a part of this. Um, and really welcome the journey that, that comes with following God. And here's the verse. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And so we're going to look at the three underlying sections this morning. So the first one is to do justice. And what I've kind of, uh, but oh my goodness, that is cuteness coming down the stairs towards me. I can't, I can't keep talking when my wife and Nora come down this, and this is just, wow. Where was I? Where was I now? Doing justice, right. The why of hope. Um, and an important question we need to ask ourselves um, at the beginning of the of justice, um, and I talked about this, the requirement factor last week, the, the difference between, of a, a perspective of a requirement, like the difference of a requirement of eating food versus the requirement to do your homework. There's, there's a different outcome that might happen if you were to disobey one of those requirements. If you were to not do your homework, it wouldn't lead to imminent death and sickness. If you were to abandon the requirement to eat food, there'd be a more serious requirement. And so the doom perspective of Micah is focusing on this serious requirement that if you continue down the path that you're in, and they were definitely guilty of that, that the result would be death, destruction. It's a serious requirement that God is actually bringing to the people. Um, And so it's not just a suggestion. So when we read the words do justice, we kind of think of it like this. If, If the building... This building all of a sudden caught fire and was burning. I don't think you would be looking for me to give you a suggestion at that moment. Um, I think most of us, all of us would know immediately what we would need to do. We would need to get out. 
We, and if I all of a sudden just said, I would suggest to you, if I knew of some information that this building's burning down, and I would I suggest that we might want to get out of the building, that kind of an attitude, you'd be puzzled and confused. Why would you do that when everything's building, burning around us? Why would you just simply give a, a um, suggestion that we need to get out? You would know, we need to get out. Let's get up. And many of you wouldn't even wait for me to say that. You'd be out the door. You'd be walking out because that's what you know to do. Suggestions are given to us when it is more about our answer and our response. If, if you were going through an issue and I were to recommend a book and suggest a book or su- suggest a conversation, the choice comes down to you, whether you follow through with that suggestion. You would decide for yourself whether or not you want to take the book or not. You might decide, I'm going to take the book. You might read it. You might find that it's valuable. You might find that it's not because it's a suggestion. You have that choice. But a a requirement, the requirement to do justice is not a suggestion. It's not just this casual, if you get around to it, I'd like you to do some justice, people. This is like The world is in a place of destruction and doom. It's a mixture of doom and hope. And so you have this dynamic of when you look around this world and you're thinking about what should I do as a Christian? Should I help this person or should I not help this person? The reality is that we live in an environment where God's given us a requirement, not in a legalistic point of view where our salvation comes out of that, but from a perspective of, I have shown you what justice is. And think about that. Think about the justice that God gives compared to our justice and and our understanding of justice. Think about the cross. It is the most ridiculous form of justice compared to how we understand justice, isn't it? That we're guilty, we're the ones that are punishable by death. And so Jesus decides to take that punishment and die on the cross for us, and he's innocent. And you know what? The great thing through scripture is that the theme of justice, that theme carries through, that arc carries through scripture. That all of a sudden, when Jesus came and did what he did, it was almost like this revelation that everything that they were looking at beforehand was made clear that all this time God was full of grace and love and mercy towards us, giving us opportunities, being just. We just didn't understand it. And so an important question for us as we approach doing justice is, is it actually justice that we're doing or is it just us? (laughs) Because justice comes from God. True justice in his form comes from him. It doesn't come from within us. As some ideology. It is something that comes from him. And then in the New Testament you have teachers who catch on to that. In Romans 12.1. Paul says present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Giving up of yourself. Your own idea. So yeah no we no longer have to live in a sacrificial system. Where we have to follow these rules. To be made right before God. Because through Jesus we are made right. Through what he did. What he paid for us on the cross. But Paul still says, abandon of yourself. Offer your body as the living sacrifice. In Mark 12, 30, 31, it's very well, just a snippet of that. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. What a powerful commandment. This is a commandment from God. 
loving your neighbor as yourself, it sounds nice. It looks nice on a card, maybe a pillow. I don't know. It's like a really nice thing that we say in church. But there's really this self-abandonment that happens here where we're willing to say, you know what, I'm focusing completely on the other. I'm focusing on you here. Loving your neighbor as yourself is such a powerful thing that we can do. And in Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Beautiful, powerful, but this understanding that justice doesn't come from within, but it comes through a surrendering of the fact that God is the one who's sovereign and in charge. Because the problem when it's just us is that when my rules of justice don't coincide with your rules of justice, we have issues. And we can see that, can't we? We can see that all around us. It doesn't matter what dynamic one level we look at. We can see when we have people warring at each other because they're fighting about their rules of justice versus somebody else's rules of justice. And when it's all about just us, we will not survive. We will come crashing down. We need the justice that comes from him. That's why it's a requirement and not a suggestion. We need to understand and surrender to his justice. And in the New Testament, they captured that, the surrendering and sacrificing of yourself, of consistently looking at your life, not in the guilty, like, condemnation, like keeping us down, but in freedom, we look at our lives and we say, God, am I, where am I at right now with you? Where am I at? Have I, am I following what you have put in your word or have I replaced it with my personal justice? Am I seeking out justice from what the world teaches and what the world says or am I surrendering all of that and listening to the word of God and what that says in the moment? And that's hard. We all fall short of the, the, the legal requirements. But there is grace. There is mercy and the power of repentance, which we talked about before. So the call to do justice is this idea that we need to give up of what our culture teaches. And our culture teaches us all the time. It's called chronocentrism. And even as Christians, we are chronocentric, which is this obsession and arrogance that comes from our time period. If you're chronocentric, it means that you think you've got it together, like <laughs> the Israelites. <laughs> well, we today have got it all together, and we understand what it's like to live as evangelical Christians in the modern world. And if only they were to know what we know about what that means and what that looks like. The repent of our chronocentric ways, it doesn't take much to look around and see, or even to look internally and see, oh God, I need you. I need to repent. I need to, to change and listen to the justice that comes from you. And a lot of that happens sometimes when we're disconnected from the word of God. When we're disconnected from each other. And that community hermeneutic, that community of faith that continues to speak into our lives and, and keep us accountable on this thing, this journey of justice. So rather than think that we're chronocentric and that we've arrived at this ultimate form of justice, or we know this ultimate form of justice, we surrender from ourselves and we say, God, I, I, we need you. As a church community, we need you to infill us with what does it mean to do justice in this world? What does that mean? 
What does that look like? And I think, like I said, that once we're on that journey, it's like, it's scary. It's frightening, isn't it? It's like getting on that airplane and white-knuckling the idea of, I'm out of control. I'm not in control on that airplane. But when you get on and you reach that destination and you completely understand, ah, now I see where you were going with that. There's this exhilarating freedom that comes along with it as well. The second thing that it says is that we are to love kindness. And um, the interesting thing about this, when I was reading this for the longest time, I used to just think we just love kind things. Like we just love the concept of kindness. Oh, you're a kind person. You must be obeying the word of God. Um, Kindness is good. There's nothing wrong with kindness. But that's not the point of the love kindness of Micah 6.8. The Hebrew word is hesed. The loving kindness of God. It's a noun. And it's a noun that's used only from God. It's used only when God gives us his loving kindness in covenant form. And so covenant was the language of the Old Testament. It was beautiful. It was harsh. Beautiful. Strong. Powerful. But a covenant was an agreement between two parties. And so God, you will remember with Abraham, made a covenant with Abraham, that he will forever be a kingly authority in that covenant relationship. So he was the greater, we were the lesser. But he committed as the greater that any time that, that you are attacked in any way, that, the, that that covenant agreement meant that if you are attacked in any way, I will come to your defense. And so in covenants in the Old Testament, but even in other ancient Near Eastern uh, religions and, and cultures of the time, they would make these, com- these covenants with other greater nations. And that nation would be in an agreement saying that if you are ever attacked, we will come and defend you. We will come and fight with you and for you because of our covenant commitment with you. And so God with Abraham, there's a, that image of that, that burning pot that's going in between, like doing the figure eight in between the, the two halves of the cow, which is like, Okay, just you, you can read it you'll, for yourself. You just if you're not familiar with that story, that's like one you're going to want to investigate. But that's how they did it back then. So you've got this cow, two halves of cow, and you've got this pot going in between. It's how I like to make covenants with Melissa. Um, we just get a cow in the middle of the living room and we walk around it. During that whole time, Abraham was asleep. He was sleeping. God put him into sleep. So God alone walked through. And made that covenant relationship on his own. And said that, that this is me and what I am going to do in this relationship. This is the commitment that I am making to you. That I will fight for you. That I will do everything. that it, If you ever come under attack, I will do whatever it takes to help you. He alone walked through then. And this is, this is way back early in the Old Testament. What a beautiful picture of God's loving kindness. His hesed. It comes from him. And we need to understand that. So much of what we do, come, what we do today comes from this concept of what feels good in the moment. We'll move forward as a community if it feels good. If we feel that people are kind towards us. If we feel this inner feeling of any kind that's positive, we'll move forward. And, and, and so many of us, and I've been there, been there myself, of coming into this church culture and being in a church environment where you come in and you're just like, I don't feel like 
doing anything good right now in this church. I don't think like moving. I feel paralyzed. I feel like I can't take that next step because I'm waiting for something to feel good about it. I'm willing, willing, waiting for somebody to tell me what I want to hear before I'll move forward. And when the Israelites were hearing this term of loving kindness, they immediately understood the who of hope, where that came from. At the beginning of Micah 6.8, It says, this is what the Lord requires of you. The Lord in the Old Testament, when it's capitalized, is Yahweh. The name of the Lord. And they would remember immediately when they see this is what Yahweh requires of us. They would be taken back on a journey of the Yahweh who saved them. Time and time again on this journey through history. Story after story after story of God being faithful and his loving kindness being displayed, his covenant promise to them. And the question that we have is that when we are released from prison as prisoners, do we just like the feeling of freedom and that's all that's important to us? Or is it, do we appreciate the who of the hope that we have? Like being released from prison and just ignoring the the who opened the door to let us out. Because we're addicted to just this feeling of obsession of this feeling that has to feel good all the time. We're not willing to stop and pause. In Acts 16, there's this beautiful story, and I love it, with uh, Paul and Silas are in prison, and they're singing songs as loud as they can, and everybody hears that. Um, Suddenly, there's this earthquake that comes, and the prison doors are, like, thrown open. And all of the prisoners had escaped. They're all running out the doors. This is like unbelievable. It's freedom. They're running. And Paul and Silas do something that's crazy. They stay where they are. And they encounter the the jailer who's there, who's like devastated. The prison doors are open. All of the prisoners had escaped. His life is in ruins. And he knows what's probably going to happen is that he's going to be killed for that. Because all of the prisoners are gone. And it was his watch. But Paul and Silas, even though they have this feeling of freedom that's right there that could be embraced, they stay and they call to him and say, don't be afraid. Don't worry. And he asks, what must I do to be saved? And they point in verse 31, they say, and they said, believe In the Lord Jesus. Believe in him and you will be saved. He could have ran. He could have gone. This obsession with freedom that we constantly have to find the latest and greatest thing to make us feel good is a pattern of obsessive sin. (laughs) It's an addiction to a feeling. When the reality is that their God is standing at the door of the prison and we're running out the door saying, thanks for freedom, woohoo! Out the door we go. I'm the one that sets you free. The who of hope is important. Remembering his loving kindness every step along the way. That if you're on this journey and you're here, amen, praise God. But where have you acknowledged the who of the hope that you have? on your journey. And that's the important thing for us to stop 
and pause to take a look at that. And we do have problems with that. We have problems with the Old Testament and the New Testament. We look at the Old Testament and we think God's unkind in the Old Testament. And it must be an angry God who hates us all. And then in the New Testament, it's all the fluffy, you know, rose petals and wonderful Jesus comes dancing around. I know that my seminary professor used to give us the image of Jesus with like a basket of flowers running around. Oh, here you go, everybody. That's Jesus. When you're reading through scripture and understanding the, the, the story of scripture, you will see his loving kindness displayed right from the very beginning to the very end. And you will see his desire for you to be his people. And so if you're struggling with two different gods, <laughs> I would love to have a conversation with you about that. Just telling you just kind of the, the insights, the, the devotional parts that I've kind of gleaned from that journey um, and seen that in my own life. And the final thing is this. We need to walk humbly with our God. And this kind of stems from that last kind of point there. I think walking in humility is easier when we look better than somebody else. Which is something we need to be very careful of. Is In humility we're more concerned with looking better than other people. Than, than the actual humility part. Counterintuitive I know. God performed the ultimate sacrifice. And in Philippians 2, it says this, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And even death on a cross. Walking in humility is the how of hope. How are we to do this thing? And for so many of us, it means being right all the time. It means being right in debates. It means being right in arguments. It means being right in culture. And it means telling everybody else that they're wrong. Um... I think there obviously are people who are right and people who are wrong. But we have to be careful not to turn this into a, an, an, an argument of self-righteousness like we talked about before. That we are making ourselves right by being right. <laughs> holding the right opinion. Humility plays an incredibly important role. Because on this journey we recognize the way that God works and moves as I was talking about. In Acts 6 and 7 we meet Stephen. And Stephen um, was appointed as one of the, the leaders who was going to be helping the Hellenistic or the Greek widows. Who were being left out in the food distribution. So the Jewish widows were, were getting food. They were getting support. But the Greek widows were not receiving any support. And so the leaders at the time gathered together and said we need to to work this out in a better way. And so Stephen was one of those selected to help in this way. And so on the journey, journey, the Bible says that he was performing works and preaching and teaching and, and doing the things that he was supposed to do. When some leaders got wind of what he was teaching in, in public, they, they gathered together and began to talk about ways that they could um, falsely accuse him of speaking against God, Yahweh, and speaking against Moses, which were obviously two critical 
figures to the Jewish faith. And so they were creating a way that he was stirring up controversy and spreading lies about God and Moses. And so he later appears in front of these leaders to face these accusations. Here's Stephen very soon after, very soon after Jesus, very soon after everything that he did, all the greatness that Jesus was and what he did and and the miracles and, and all of that stuff. And you would think as evangelicals, we always focus on the answers Jesus. We joke about that. What's the answer to the question? It's always Jesus. It's like the cliche answer that we give to some things. And um, here's Stephen with an opportunity to face his accusers and what he's going to say. And what he does is this. He begins in 7 and he talked in chapter 7 of Acts. And he starts going through the story of God's journey with the people of Israel. Like he's walking them through a journey. He starts talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And Moses and David and Solomon and in the prophets. Speaking the truth from the Old Testament. One of the most beautiful kind of short outlines of the Old Testament is right there in Acts chapter 7. If you want an outline to draw from, it's a great one to start. If you're kind of looking at the Bible for the first time and you want kind of a a brief outline of it, go to Acts 7. And then you'll kind of get a guidance of where it kind of goes from there. But he speaks with them. And the purpose of his discussion each and every way is to, to document the journey of the people of Israel with their God. Yes, his loving kindness, but also their role in that journey. And that it's like describing a walk through a park. <laughs> and every little destination that you went to along the way. Everything that happened. You're, like you're giving a slideshow of every little thing that happened between you and God on that journey. Because Stephen acknowledged the length of the journey. And the breadth of the journey. And the importance of that journey. And what that takes is a tremendous amount of humility. Whenever we look back on our lives and we, we highlight the ways that God has interacted with us. Like those, those markings. Those things in your life that you just point to and just say, yeah, that's the one that I remember on this day where I was feeling this. And God met me. Or this time where you heard that amazing supernatural message from Raja. And you were just thinking, he said that thing. I don't even remember what it was. But whatever it was, it was like it forced me into this decision time. Of like God meeting me. And I don't remember, really remember how he said it or the way he said it. But, but I knew God was there. <laughs> asking me, calling me. And you start remembering each and every part of that journey. What you realize that at the end of that, you look back and you survey the whole thing. You just remember, oh man, who am I? Who am I? God, pick me up and take me somewhere again. Pick me up and take me where you want me to go. Because every step along the way has been good because you've been with me. And when it's not, when I fall away and when I decide to go on my own path, when I go down that way that brings about destruction and and I go down that way that's completely in the opposite direction of God, because of his loving kindness, he draws us back and calls us home. He says, come back to me. 
So with these things, we, we understand, I hope, a little bit greater kind of the context around the book of Micah and the requirement that he had given to the people to do justice and love that justice that comes from him and embrace it and submit to it. To love kindness, the hesed, the covenant promise that he gave us. And to walking humbly with our God that reflects consistently on the testimony of God in our life. When David had stumbled and was walking away, he called on God to restore to him the joy of my salvation. And I think that's where we, I want to kind of close today for us. Is this declaration of hope in the journey that God has given us. To declare the fact that if you feel like you've been going in the wrong direction. Or needing some kind of guidance and support that God is there to do that for you. To pick you up. To carry you. To bring you on this amazing journey that is awesome. And the fact that we can do this together as a community. Whether it's UCC, DCC, and beyond. To knowing that this journey that we're on is supported by a covenant promise that God has given to his people. And he says, I will never fail you. I will never let you fight alone. And that is true. Restore unto us the joy of that salvation. The joy of knowing that he's every step of the way he is there with us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this group. I thank you for this journey that they are on in the ways that I'm very much looking forward to learning and growing from each of them and I thank you for this community, God, in the ways that you are moving and working. Father, I ask that you would show us within ourselves and within our community where we need to repent of our self-righteousness, of our chronocentrism, with our obsession of feeling like we've got it all figured out. May we be humble followers of you, acknowledging your authority in our lives, your sovereignty in our lives. And rather than fighting against that, let's just ride on that plane and get to the destination you have for us. Because God, you are taking us to new heights, new destinations, new opportunities, and that destination is good. We may not always understand it or know where we're going, but God, thank you for for calling us on it. Thank you for calling us forward. And I thank you for your grace and your love. I pray that the weight whatever the weight is of sin or guilt or condemnation that somebody here might feel this morning, whether that's something that they have done in the past, maybe it was something that was done to them in the past, as people so full of shame and guilt, so full of embarrassment. Um, God, each person that is here is a testimony of the power of your salvation. I am a testimony of the power of your salvation. I know what it is to be a sinner before you God I know what it is to fail before you because I can't measure up through the law I can't measure up through the things that I do from from myself and so God I pray that the that every one of us here would just be renewed and restored with this appreciation for everything that comes from you (laughs) it's like trying to sit at the bottom of Niagara Falls with your mouth open and trying to drink it's like this overwhelming sense of power and love 
that you're pouring out in us. And so we're excited. We're, we're anticipating the greatness that you're going to bring to this community. But may we first just continue to recognize our place, you. That you are good. You are sovereign. You're all powerful and just, and you know us by name. And you love us. You gave yourself up for us. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. In your great and awesome name, amen. Amen.